Well, welcome to Faith, and welcome to our July message series on the prayers of Paul, or prayers from the heart of Paul from the, uh, his epistle to the Ephesians. The purpose of this prayer series is not to make you feel guilty because of maybe your sense of a weak prayer life. Uh, it is not to guilt you into praying more. Most of us will confess that we need to grow in our prayers and we struggle with prayer. But the purpose of these messages is to give grace to you in your prayers or to so reveal and encourage you in the goodness and the surpassing greatness of God who through prayer wants to open your eyes and expand your hearts to know his goodness, his surpassing greatness, and his incomparable love for you that you will want to pray, that you will feel, feel compelled to pray. Uh, George Mueller uh, from Bristol, England back in the 1800s. Uh, he was a Christian evangelist, the, the director of the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, England. He cared for over 10,000 orphans in his life. Uh, he was well known for providing education uh, for children under his care. He had established 117 Christian schools and served over 120,000 children. Uh, he was accused of raising the poor above their natural station in life. What a great accusation. <laughs> uh, Mueller's faith in God was strengthened day by day and uh, through hours that he spent in daily prayer and Bible reading. It said at the end of his life, uh, he would read through the Bible four times a year. But this is what he said. I saw more clearly than ever that the first and great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how I might serve the Lord or how I might glorify the Lord but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man may be nourished. I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the Word of God and to meditation of it. I think there's a huge amount of wisdom in this man of great faith. Now, over the course of the first two weeks, we have reviewed in Paul's opening statements uh, his, his prayers of praise and his prayers of petition concerning the spiritual blessings and the glorious riches and the incomparable power given to believers in this gospel-centered, grace-filled prayer. Paul is spending time doing just this thing for the Ephesians out of his own exhilarated happy state and knowing the amazing grace of God. Paul is not telling them first how they might serve God, how they might glorify the Lord, but was reveling in and praying in his prayers why they have great cause to have such happy souls as God's children in Christ. 
Last week we saw that Paul's first prayer in chapter 1 was a prayer to have their eyes open and their hearts expanded, that they might know Christ better, that they might know the glorious wealth of their inheritance that is beyond the, any mega-million jackpot lottery winnings, and to have the understanding of the incomparable power that they possess in Christ. And now in chapter 2, Paul continues to reveal not only more specifics of God's rich mercy on them and saving them out of their rebel, sin-filled state through Christ, but also how through the cross, God has united, alienated Jews and Gentiles into a single new humanity. God has not only through the blood of his perfect son reconciled and redeemed hell-bent and broken sinners to himself, but has also reconciled and healed the divisions of alienated, hate-filled, prejudiced peoples between one another to form one body, to form one new family with one God and Father, one Lord and Savior, and one Spirit. And Paul, what he calls this, what we would say, a double reconciliation, he calls it the mystery, not that it was a secret, but that it was hidden until Christ came. Paul has given the, the charge and the commission to proclaim this mystery to the Gentiles. And so now here in our text today, Paul offers his third prayer, starting in Ephesians 3.14 and following. Paul's prayer focus on the Ephesians is not on things, it's not on circumstances, but on a living relation with Christ, their grasp of his love, and the immeasurable greater dreams God has in store for them. They will need an abiding sense of these fueling graces to fulfill their mission in the world as God's reconciled church. Let's read verse 14 and following. For this reason... I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. We need to be a church in prayer for our beloved and troubled city. Uh, there are many concerns about the seemingly unchecked violence of our city this year, with over 180 citizens being murdered, 30% more than last year, and it appears to be driving to be the deadliest year on record. Councilwoman Mary Pat Clark a longtime council member said, we're in a pretty desperate place here. And I have confidence that between the city council, the mayor, the police department, and especially the public, we will get ourselves together and move forward as quickly as possible. 
But lately, there has been some tensions among our city officials about what exactly is this comprehensive crime-fighting plan because it hasn't been publicly presented as of yet. Now, last month, Baltimore citizen Lisa Abrams wrote an appeal to the Sun paper, and she says, wanted a plan to curtail killings. It was her response to the record violence. She said, where is the outrage over the murders in Baltimore? I am outraged and I am sad. So many young people dead. We are a city divided between white and black, rich and poor, opportunity and hopelessness, violence and calm. Children are witnessing horrific violence and nothing changes. Schools are faced with supporting traumatized children who witness unspeakable violence while trying to teach in environments that are stuck in cycles of hopelessness and despair. I want leaders who can tell us, the citizens of Baltimore, what their plan is to end the murders of our fellow citizens and end other types of crimes that are rising. We need action. We need it now. Our children are too valuable to lose. A few months ago, I was asked to be interviewed by a national church-based news publication about the situation in Baltimore that was related to Freddie Gray and the riots and the unrest that resulted in his being killed while in custody. Uh, they were doing a two-year follow-up report, and she wanted me to know, she wanted to know whether our church was working on what she said was the problem. That is an important question for the church and for leaders of the church to have a response to. What is our plan to the crisis of our city? What specifically are we doing as a church to help make this a stronger, safer, more peace-filled city? When Deacon Evangelist was sent to Samaria, Philip, in Acts 8, it says, in, in response to his ministry there, and there was great joy in that city. What is our plan to bring great joy to this great city, to our community of Penn Lucy, and to the world? Well, but a more important question to be answered is, what is God's plan? What is his comprehensive master plan to our situation and the crisis of our society. In the verses preceding our passage, Paul talks about a certain grace given to him, and he brings up the language of God's plan. It says, starting in verse 8, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose which he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access and confidence through our, our faith in him. Paul brings up God's plan. God's purpose, his consecrated, resolute, visible, public plan. 
his, the word is prothesis, his setting forth purpose is that, the, that through the church, the manifold, diverse, many-faceted wisdom of God, like a multifaceted diamond, is displayed in all of its brilliance, is presented before the universe as a witness of God's unsearchable wisdom and grace. This is what the NIV Bible comments on this. Now, in contrast to the past, through the church, the fact that God has done the seemingly impossible reconciling and organically uniting Jews and Gentiles in the church make the church the perfect means of displaying God's wisdom, manifold, variegated, or multifaceted in the way that many facets of a diamond reflect and enhance its beauty. Rulers and authorities, Christ has ascended over all these. It is a staggering thought that the church on earth is observed, so to speak, by these spiritual powers, and that to the degree the church is spiritually united, it portrays to them the wisdom of God. How specifically does the church display the manifold wisdom of God? By revealing and bringing to light God's plan, by revealing his mystery hidden for ages past, and now revealed, and what is this mystery now revealed? In verse 6 of this passage, just verses before, it says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. What Paul is saying is that God's plan and God's purpose his consecrated, resolute, visible, public plan is that through the church, through his bride, his manifold wisdom of the gospel, of his reconciling grace would be on display. Paul here is, has presented to the Ephesian believers and to us God's mission or purpose statement for the church. The church, the reconciled, united body of Christ across the divides and historic hostilities is God's A plan, God's strategy for the world in crisis. Now, some might say, well, what's plan B? <laughs> I mean, the church, <laughs> it seems such a weak instrument. There is no plan B. <laughs> Jesus spent most of his three-year ministry on earth focusing and investing in 12 rather unschooled, self-focused men that they might lead the spreading of this gospel good news through a church-planting movement of reconciled communities of disciple-makers who would make disciples, the church the present physical incarnational presence of Christ in the world is God's plan. God's mission of good news to the world and to our city and to our communities. The Willow Bank Report, Lausanne Consultation of Gospel and Culture, is a, a gathering of various recognized leaders in world evangelization, said this. First, each church is part of the universal church, the people of God, are by his grace a unique, multiracial, multinational, multicultural community. The community is God's new creation, his new humanity in which Christ has abolished all barriers. See Ephesians 2 and 3. 
There is therefore no room for racism in the Christian society or for tribalism, whether in its Africa, African form or in the form of European social classes or of the Indian caste system. Despite the church's failures, this vision of a supra-ethnic community of love is not a romantic ideal, but a command of the Lord. Therefore, while rejoicing in our cultural inheritance and in developing our own indigenous forms, we must always remember that our primary identity as Christians is not in our particular culture, but in the one Lord and his one body. I think that's a very strong and biblically faithful statement of the mission and the calling of the church. Now, you might be asking, well, Craig, I don't get how this relates to the passage that you are to preach on. Where are you going? Because this is how it relates. Paul introduces his prayer with these words. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. For this reason, Paul prays. He, his prayer flows from what he has just been talking about. His calling to proclaim the mystery of God through the gospel, that the Gentiles are now one family with Jews through Christ to display, to showcase God's manifold wisdom, his uniting, reconciling grace before a watching universe. And this is what drives Paul to pray and what Paul prays for. So here Paul is praying for the empowerment for the church to display this reconciling gospel in and before the world. It is an unrivaled mission. It is a huge god sized impossible mission and it will demand a huge unrivaled power to accomplish such a mission where do believers where do you and i where does the church get such a power to accomplish god's reconciling mission in the world well we see it here in paul's prayer and i call it paul's prayer for power for the church to accomplish her mission for the reconciling gospel in the world. I can only be brief, but there are three key things that Paul raises in this prayer. The indwelling Christ, you will need the indwelling Christ, you will need the rooting this in love, and you will need the surpassing dreams of God. The essential critical role, we must not we must not dismiss is that Paul is praying for these things. He is leading the Ephesians in prayer. This is such a huge mission. It's going to demand massive prayer focus. And so Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. You know, it's appropriate to pray in any way you can. You can pray standing. You can pray walking. You can pray in all kinds of forms, but clearly, when a person gets on their knees, when they prostrate themselves, there is an earnestness there that reveals an intensification of what they're praying for. You know, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he was arrested, it says that he knelt in prayer. We find various occasions where Believers and leaders, Ezra, confessed Israel's sins on his face. We find this intensification and in how appropriate it is that there are times where we 
recognize the utter dependency upon God that we would bow our knees in prayer. By the way, uh, um, there are just wonderful works that are taking place in this church uh, these weeks with the, uh, the Summer at Faith and the Plan Arts and the Bible Camp. And, and I know that there's a lot of prayers that are going on to support this, and I want to encourage you to continue to be praying for the youth, the children, and the leaders who are engaged in this important gospel ministry. I, I have a pastor friend uh, who they just did a, a vacation Bible school this past week, and they were uh, uh, inviting the community to participate. But uh, he said there was a woman who encouraged other other people to gather together in prayer, and so my pastor friend joined them. And every single night during that week, these women and others gathered together and they prayed through each person's name that was invited and participating in that outreach. How important it is to recognize the uh, the value of prayer. And so Paul is praying. He is praying, but. The first thing he prays for is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now some might get puzzled over such a petition because we would say, well, when I gave my life to Christ, when I repented of my sins, and I trusted him to be my Savior, I thought that he already was dwelling in my life, that he was already present. And it is very true that all believers have the indwelling presence of Jesus. But what Paul is speaking about here is the experience of intimate fellowship of Christ indwelling of that acknowledgement of Christ's presence in reality. And so he is saying, he is praying that they would experience Christ's continual presence in their lives. And so it is, the word, by the way, is used to dwell, to settle, to inhabit, to live, to take up residence. I can remember uh, some years ago, Robert Hunger wrote this little booklet on My Heart, Christ's Home. And it talked about how, as a believer, their heart was like uh, a house. And uh, they would, as they invited Christ into their heart, uh, it talked about the different rooms of their heart. Uh, the living room and the kitchen and the bedroom. And it, and it basically talked about how Christ was invited to dwell and to have access to all of the rooms, but he talked about this one particular closet that he really did not want Jesus to go to. Uh, he wanted Jesus to be okay, like in the living room or in the study, but there was something in that closet that he was not interested in Jesus seeing. And I think that uh, many of us may struggle with things in our closets that we don't want Jesus to see. But I will tell you that those things will keep you from an intimate fellowship with Jesus. And so you need to take responsibility to make sure that there is nothing 
that interferes with your fellowship. You know, repentance and faith is the work that we do. It is the work that we do, and, and it's hard work, and we have to constantly repent. We have to repent every day, and we need help to repent. Uh, just by the way, um, you know, one of the big challenges in our very big media and Internet society is just the challenge of pornography. And it's not just the challenge for men. It's also the challenge for women. And uh, one of the most important things you do, Christian, uh, so that you uh, make sure that Jesus has access is to bring light on your habits. Uh, I have... I have a software on my computer that uh, I, my brother has it. I have some pastor friends have it. My wife has access to what I see. It's important. It's so important that we make sure that Christ has access to every compartment of our lives. And so, G, so Paul is asking for uh, the believers to... To, to be strengthened in their inner being so that Christ might dwell, that Christ might have constant access and communion, that he might be in a living, intimate relationship all the time. The faster, by the way, the faster that you can take your junk to Christ, the stronger your relationship is. You know, as soon as you're feeling anxious about something... Go to Jesus and tell him exactly why you're anxious. Uh, I recently was in a rather anxious moment in a conversation with my wife. And we were talking about such and such a problem. And uh, we were getting upset. And I said, why is it that we go to prayer as the last thing? That we will spend our time on fixating on our problems and our worries and getting upset. And it's like prayer and taking our junk to Jesus is the last thing that we do. So I said, I just started praying with her. <laughs> the faster that you can take your stuff to Jesus, the faster you can bring him into your heart issues, whether it's lust or whether it's anxiety and worry, whether it's anger and jealousy and pride or whatever it is, bring him into it. Bring him fast into it. Get some help with others to bring him into it. He is praying that Christ will dwell in your hearts through faith. Jesus said in John 15, and this is probably one of the best commentaries on how Jesus dwells in our hearts. It says, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And he talks about... Remain in me, and my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given. For this is my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And so Jesus wants us to remain. He wants us to abide. He wants us to dwell. This is an active act of faith and repentance. But he also is praying that they would be rooted in love that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. This is a, a rather breathtaking prayer. Uh, and Paul is touching on the critical nature of where the love of Christ is in our lives. 
you know, he, he could have maybe used other things. He could have said obedience. He could have said your service. He could have said, you know, peace. He could have said other things, but he says love. He says he wants you to know the love. And so we find that knowing Christ's love is such a critical aspect of, of the power for us to fulfill this divine calling. Rooted and established. These are words that are revealing first like a tree is rooted and the roots go deep and in the midst of all the winds and the storms it stays strong or grounded is dealing with the, a building that the foundations are on a rock and it's strong and it can handle the forces that come against it. And so Paul is referring to that you being rooted and established in love would have the power to know this love of God. But he talks about the breadth of it. It seems to me, John Stott says, that the, it's legitimate to say that the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, especially Jews and Gentiles, the theme of these chapters, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. <laughs> One person says, whether you go forward or backward, up to the heights or down to the depths, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. When you start realizing the magnitude of Christ's love, as you live in it, as you understand it and comprehend that, and by the way, it says comprehend with all the saints, we need each other. We need to be in community to be able to fully appreciate this magnificent love that we have. It is as we live in that love, as we understand that love, that it says that we will be filled with the fullness of the measure of God. It is understanding the love of God in Christ for us that is the means of our spiritual growth and maturity, of us becoming like Jesus. We need to be able to know the depths of this love. When Jesus, uh, or when Moses uh, was before God and, uh, you know, the Israelites had rebelled against God in the wilderness. They had, they had went into reveling and uh, made a golden calf and God was getting ready to destroy them. And, and Moses intercedes as a good priest before God and says, what are the nations going to think about if you, start, if you kill all your people? Uh, God was encouraging Moses to step in the gap and to be this mediator at this moment, really reflecting how Jesus became our mediator. But, but Moses intercedes, and God says, I'm not going to destroy them, <clears throat> but I'm not going to go with you into the promised land. You, you, and Moses says, well, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us. And he was determined that God's presence has to be with them. Moses was a very wise mediator. And then Moses says, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And when... <clears throat> 
God took Moses and he put him in the cleft of the rock. The words that he says is this, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, but he punishes the children of their children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. But what, so God is a just God. God is a righteous and holy God. But God is first a merciful, loving God. The first words is that he is a compassionate, loving God. He is a forgiving God, forgiving rebellion and wickedness and sin. <clears throat> Living in the love of Christ is a constant need for us. We need to constantly wash ourselves into the grace of God through his word that we might get our souls happy in the Lord. Happy in the Lord, because there are so many attacks that said, you're not lovable. You're a foolish person. God can't love you because of all of your sins. You have a wicked heart. You can hear all of these voices, but what you need to hear is the voice of the God who loves you to the very depths in Christ. Now, some of you have seen a little bit of a tattoo on my sleeve. I have a tattoo. There it is. <clears throat> and, and this tattoo is from John 17, 23. Uh, it says, it says, Kai agapisas altus kathos emi agapisas. There are six words. It says, and loved them just as, exactly as, precisely as you loved me. Now, why did I get this tattoo? I'm not really sure why. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it was last September. I said, if there were six words that I were going to place on my skin with, uh, with permanent ink, it would be these six words. And so, last September, I said, well, I just want to, like, explore this. I just want to uh, see about what it would cost and what's involved and whether this particular design is okay. And so, I, you know, I took it straight from the Greek manuscript, and I, you know... Uh, made this design with kathos because that is the kind of the axis word that connects the love of Christ to the love of his disciples. And, uh, and so I went in and I met with uh, one of the tattoo artists and he was a graduate from Micah. And he looked at it and he says, he says, listen, he says, uh, I can do this. I can do this right now. And he said, I just had a cancellation. I am literally booked up for the next two months. If you want me to do it, I can do it. And just really rather spontaneously, I said, <laughs> yes, let's do it. He, uh, you know, so of course, as I had my arm stretched out, he's, he's asking me questions about it. You know, I said, well, this is, you know, Jesus's last words before he was arrested and went to the cross. And it says that the first part of the verse is, I and them and you and me, that they might be perfectly one so that the world would know that you sent me and loved them 
just as, exactly as, precisely as you loved me. And I said, when I read this verse, I am so undone by the love of God. I can't, I, I, it just is astounding. It floors me that Jesus would love, that the same love that the Father has for his only perfect, beloved, brilliant son, that that same exact love would be for foolish, wicked, sinning disciples like me. And so um, I've had the opportunity, by the way, 40% of young people between the ages of 25 and 40 have tattoos. We live in a society where a lot of people uh, put on their skin uh, things in their souls. It's the canvas of... Uh, of what of people's hearts that is exposed, and a lot of people want you to want to know want people to know what that is. And I had opportunities. A woman had a rose. I said, "It's a really nice rose. What do you, can you tell me about this rose?" And she says, "Well, this is for my mom. My mom uh, died as a drug addict, uh, but I loved her, and uh, this is a memorial. And actually, a lot of tattoos are memorials. But I've had the opportunity just to, you know, share." what this tattoo means to me, and it's been an opportunity to share the love of God. Now, it was after I got that tattoo, I started thinking, isn't there a verse in Leviticus? <laughs> and there is a verse in Leviticus, and this is what it says, do not cut your bodies for the dead or put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. And I said, well, Lord, I, you know, I, <laughs> you know, I, I guess I, I missed it. I didn't think enough about that verse, you know. <clears throat> and so I talked to this other, uh, I talked to this, this, uh, this pastor who wrote this book on uh, tattoos. Um, he wrote this book uh, on tattoos. I forget the title of it. The, uh, Why Are People Writing on Themselves? <clears throat> And he said, yeah, it's true that, you know, there, that is that verse in there. But that verse is really dealing with idolatry and, and, and the worship of false gods, that those tattoos are related to that. But you want to know something? Jesus has a tattoo. Really, yeah. Yeah. Revelation chapter 19. On his robe and on his thigh, he has written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So Jesus has a tattoo. So, makes me feel a little bit better. But there are many times that uh, in my own feeling of guilt over uh, wasted time or stupid things that I have done or said, uh, I can't, you know, this verse just constantly comes back to me because it was right after Jesus prayed that the love of the Father, would, that same love that he has for Jesus would be for his disciples. It was right after that prayer, they all abandoned him. They all deserted him. They denied him. And yet that love was still true. And it's true for you. Whatever you have done in the past, whatever stupid, foolish things that you might be thinking right now, and whatever foolish sins that you will do in the future, in Christ, you have the same perfect, 
divine love that the Father has for Jesus. And when the Father came to Christ in his baptism, and a voice shouted from heaven, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. You have that voice from your Father. You are that son. You're that daughter that has, you are my son. You are my daughter. With you, I am well pleased. I love you. Henry Nowen said, why is it so important that you, and, you are with God and God alone on the mountaintop? It's important because it's the place in which you can listen to the voice of the one who calls you the beloved. To pray is to listen to the one who calls you my beloved daughter, my beloved son, my beloved child. To pray is to let the voice speak to the center of your being, to your guts, and to let that voice resound in your whole being. It is so important that you dwell in the love of Christ. It is the power for you to be able to grow in your faith and to do the hard, unbelievable, missional things that God has called you to. But finally, the surpassing dreams. And so Paul ends... This prayer with this benediction now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. And again, Stott says, God's ability to answer prayer is forcefully stated by the apostle in a composite expression of seven stages. He is able to do or to work, for he is neither idle nor inactive nor dead. He is able to do what we ask, for he bears, he hears and answers prayer. He is able to do what we ask or think, for he reads our thoughts, and sometimes we imagine things for which we dare not and therefore do not ask. He is able to do all that we ask or think, for he knows it all and can perform it all. He is able to do more, more, hyper, beyond, all that we ask or think, for his expectations are higher than ours. He is able to do much, much more or more abundantly than all that we ask or think, for he does not give his grace by calculated measure. He is able to do very much more, far abundantly than all that we ask or think, for he is a God of superabundance. This is the God of Dreams beyond our imaginations. And so this God is the God who is at work in his church, working in us to do and to his good pleasure. And he wants to bless us and to do dreams beyond what we can think or imagine. And when you are in the center of God's will and you're seeking God's pleasure, you will see him do things in your life and in the community of God's people beyond what you could think or imagine. I've experienced those moments, and if you're a believer, you probably can say, yes, I have too. And we need to recognize that that's what God does to fuel his good purposes in our midst. You know, I asked this question at the beginning, what is our plan as God's church for the crisis of this city. This is the God's plan. The worshiping, united community of God's people. This is God's purpose in the world. When people dwell together in unity, 
<laughs> when, so here's some pictures. This is our youth group. The day after the riots, the youth gathered from our church and went over to Sandtown, and they served that community in our sister church, New, New Song. It was a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God manifested in that place. The next picture is what took place a couple weeks later when the Cumberland Church came and gathered with us for the Penn Lucy Service Project two years as we helped renovate and do maintenance work on various houses in the community for the glory of God. And these other pictures are more recent. Uh, these are pictures that are taking place in these last weeks uh, through the uh, Penn Lucy or through our Summer at Faith and the Plan Arts and the Bible Camp. And uh, it is a beautiful picture of God's plan and purposes. Uh, when you see this, if you've been in our body for a while, you could say, well, this is, this is just who we are. This is just what we do. Here's the thing. If this was in every community throughout the city and throughout this region, what difference would it make for Baltimore? It would be huge. And our desire is that we would be a faithful colony of the kingdom of God in this space and that we would be a people that would pray to see the spread of various colonies throughout the city, throughout the region, throughout the world. This is God's A plan. You are living the dream. You're living God's dream. And I believe that the best days are ahead of us. That God has dreams bigger than you and I can imagine as we seek to live in his love and as we're empowered by his spirit the indwelling Christ will do wonderful things. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful that you are a God who dreams much bigger than us. Lord, our dreams are often very small. But Lord, I thank you that we've been able to capture uh, your plan and purposes in this body, in this community, and for what you're doing just in this given uh, these weeks as uh, Plan Arts and the Faith Summer Camp has been functioning. We thank you for our youth group that are getting ready to leave for Cumberland. God, we are grateful for the community groups that are meeting weekly and all of the moments where people are gathered together across the divide to display this united community. Lord, how can we do this? How can we continue to strive when there's ignorance and there's hurts and there's wounds and there's all kinds of junk in our lives? It's because of your love. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to dwell with Jesus. Lord, we pray, Jesus, that you would dwell with us, that we would not allow sin uh, to go unchecked, and that, God, we would keep our hearts pure, that, God, we would encourage each other. We pray that we would know the depths and the heights and the width and the magnitude of your love. Lord Jesus, do that in our hearts and do that in this place, and we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.